The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Then no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it happens that we went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, these disciples beginning to wipe their heads off grain. And the Pharisees said to them, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him? No, he went to, into the house of God in the days of Bapha, the high priest, and ate the shortbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some of those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Of all the things that the religious leaders come at Jesus about, none of them could possibly be more common than that of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, I think I've counted seven times that the religious leaders come straight at Jesus in the area of the Sabbath. I think that's quite noteworthy. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up right now. Uh, I can do this. <coughs> of, those, of those, Jesus, now this is the first time we actually get in the Gospel of Mark. But it's not the first, it won't be, certainly won't be the last. Uh, and so let me say, um, see, it's not actually showing it. See how that works? I should have been more prepared. I'm sorry, guys. Let's see if this one does it. Okay. Um, in those in those times, it will be Jesus. Well, the first time, by the way, isn't even a time where he performs something. I'm going to see how many I can just do straight from memory since I don't have it written down. Uh, the first time Jesus stands up in his own hometown of Nazareth and he stands up on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And he actually says, as he reads from Isaiah, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me too. And then he starts to speak of these beautiful miracles to people. And then he says, today in this, uh, this day, you're hearing, this is fulfilled. Of course, they were speaking of the Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah. And they want to kill him for it. But he isn't necessarily doing anything on the Sabbath other than making a declaration of who he is. But then Jesus is going to deal with this particular situation where they're rubbing grain. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. Then Jesus is going to deal with a man with a withered hand. Also in the synagogue, by the way. Also uh, in, syn- in uh, Capernaum. Uh, we do know there was one time before this, actually even in the Gospel of Mark, and that was when Jesus went to the synagogue in Capernaum, I remind you, and there was a guy possessed by a demon. And he cast the guy out. Or cast the demon out. And that was on a Sabbath. There's a woman who has actually been bent over for 18 years. She's had this horrible malady, and he actually heals her. Uh, there has been a, a man who was born blind in John 9, for instance, who Jesus heals. And he heals him on the Sabbath and then says, all right, no, get up and, and go. Well, go wash in the pool of Siloam. There is a guy in John 5 where uh, he is at the pool of Bethesda. And there Jesus then gets this guy and he hadn't walked. It was for 38 years he had this malady. And he pulls him up and he goes, now, carry, to take up your mat and go. And then all of these things take place on the Sabbath. And that freaks them out. Now, so part of that is we want to get an understanding of what in the world the Sabbath really is according to Scripture and what it's supposed to point us to. Because Jesus says, you search the Scriptures thinking by them that you possess eternal life, but they are the ones that testify of me. Ultimately, if we're driving on the highway of the Scripture, we should be able to, every offering is going to pull us to Jesus. That's supposed to be the idea. But then if we're going to get there, we can agree to something idealistically, but then the point is, well, what about us personally? I mean, how is this supposed to apply to me? So I wanted to start with this. 
Obviously, the idea of Sabbath, Shabbat, is the way that it's said in Hebrew. It, it literally means rest. So there's this concept of that God demanded rest. And by the way, this is way before the law. As a matter of fact, it's a couple millennia before the law because God actually mentions it back in Genesis chapter 2. So you really can't get far into Scripture without getting to that because God rests. So I'm going to cover a bunch of Scriptures to kind of develop that. But I want to start with this. It started with the idea, in essence, that God made man on the sixth of seven days. And then, in essence, God then takes the next day off. Now, we do read, according to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, that God never gets tired. He never needs a nap like us. So it wasn't like God rested because he was tired. It wasn't like God was like, Phew, do you know how hard it is to say, let light be? That really takes it out of you. So the purpose for God actually taking the day off was not for his own restoration or refreshment. So there's only one thing left. God makes man on the sixth day, and he says, I'm taking the next day off. Well, why would I take a day off? To spend it with my kids or my wife. It's about relationship. So understand, the whole premise for Sabbath in the first place was simply this. Not just rest, but I would dare say, God saying, hey, rest with me. That's the whole point. The problem is if you miss the next, those two words with me, rest becomes work. And there's the irony. God's work was making stuff. Well, that's kind of nice. But then ultimately, God stops making stuff to spend the day with Adam. Does that make sense so far? Now, the real question, then God ultimately, we do know this, that according to the book of Exodus, this is a commandment of the ten. As a matter of fact, it's the fourth. It's like the first four God spent specifically on, on, on relationship. The first four about your relationship. In other words, I'd say the first four are vertical, and then the next six are, are horizontal. But you can't do this without doing this right first. And that becomes a real problem with any religion in the simplest sense. And here becomes my application before we dive into this. Is that in the end of it all, we're either going to have to swallow the fact tonight that God wants us to rest or that God really wants us to work. Now, we will be involved in the work, but it's strange to think I can rest in it. Because in the end of it all, it's does my relationship with God rely on my working or does it rely on my resting? And that becomes the point. And that's what makes Jesus different from everything else. So, when God says, look at Keep the Sabbath holy. Shabbat, by the way, we're probably aware Sunday's not the Sabbath. Sabbath's the seventh day of the week, and you're probably aware Sunday's the first day of the week. Which means that when people are like, oh, you got to keep the Sabbath holy, so you need to come to church on a... Hey, perfect. Hey, man. Hey, man. You have, to, you, know, you have to come to church on a Sunday because you have to keep the Sabbath holy. I'm like, well, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that Sabbath's a Saturday. So here they are, and of course, again, seven different times they're going to try to nail Jesus to the point where, I mean, when they're trying to actually find a reason to kill Jesus, they're going to say, oh, he breaks the Sabbath. Now, God does make clear that breaking the Sabbath is a capital offense. As a matter of fact, there's a guy in Numbers, and he's gathering sticks on that day to make a fire, and God says that's not something you should do. But the question is, how far do you go with it? You put a bunch of guys together when we make it a philosophy now, and we're like, okay, so what do I do to not, how far do we have to go with not breaking the Sabbath? What breaks the Sabbath and what doesn't break the Sabbath? Well, ultimately, you're going to have to get opinions in it. So, um, it's gotten to the point now where the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are verbal traditions, I remind you, they are traditions, they're not scripture, have gotten to the point where 39 volumes are written on what it means to keep the Sabbath. How to keep it or how to break it. So, I thought it would do a little quiz with us to see how up you are on Sabbath etiquette. So flip this around for a minute. <coughs> so do this for a second. If you have a pen, um, check the ones that you think are actually true. I warn you, not all of them are true. So let's go through them. You can only take 200, I'm sorry, 2,000 steps beyond your house unless you tie a rope to your house. Then you can walk 2,000 steps beyond the rope. That is true. True. That is true. Because technically, <laughs> you are forbidden to look in a mirror as you might be tempted to pluck a gray hair. That would be reaping is true. 
You can only eat an egg which has been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking. True. That's true. That is true. But isn't killing the chicken work? You know, actually, here's the thing. You have to kill the chicken before the Sabbath. Okay. Okay. So, in other words, you couldn't eat the egg for a week. Or, you get the idea. <clears throat> it is unlawful to move furniture except a ladder which you can move four steps. True. If a woman got mud on her dress, she she was to wait until it dried. Then she had one chance to crumple her dress and one chance to shake it off. If it remained, she had to wear it. True. <laughs> it is per, it is forbidden to press a floor button on a lift. It is true in most cases. Do you know what makes it work? You're not allowed to turn on a light. It's not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with pressing a button, per se, but if you press a button in most lifts, it turns on the light behind it, which means the same thing applies to your laptops. Yeah, but if you have like one of those super old ones, where you actually just press the button and it doesn't light up, you're actually okay. This was done in like... Because, I mean, this is done in the last like, 100 years. Mm -hmm. Some of these are actually within the last four. Matter of fact, this is a really fun thing, by the way, when we're in Israel during a Sabbath. And I like to do this thing where we do this lift race. Yeah. Because they have a Gentile elevator and they have a kosher elevator. And, like, if I were to look at Dan, see, but the problem is not Dan knows this. Or if I were to say to Tunde, hey, Tunde, I'll race you. You take that lift. I'll take this lift and I'll take the Gentile one and I can press any button I want or no buttons. Meanwhile, you'll be there and it'll open on every floor on its own because that way you don't have to press the button. Oh, wow. How's that? You are allowed to dip your radish in salt but not to keep it there because that would be pickling. True. <laughs> As a matter of fact, there is a debate on how long it takes to pickle before it starts pickling. If it's there more than a second and actually, they even have this motion. If it's more than that, it's considered pickling. So, it is forbidden to pick your nose on the Sabbath. Technically, it is not. Yeah, you're actually okay. But there's still debate on it. The chief rabbi in Jerusalem, his name is Rabbi Yosef, has said, here's the problem. One, if you find something in there, it's reaping. <laughs> Two, if you accidentally catch a hair, it's reaping. Or if you cause bleeding because you're a little too excited about what you're doing up there, that actually is causing harm. And you can't destroy, and that's destroying. But if you can technically pick your nose without doing any of those things, I'm not sure why you would under such circumstances, but just the same. You're allowed to spit on a rock, but not on the ground, because that would be considered farming. True. But if you spit on a rock and it rolls onto the ground, it's still considered farming. So you have to make sure you've got a big enough rock. Which, by the way, means that in certain places you want to make sure you look at the rock before you sit down on it. <clears throat> you are not allowed to wipe your bottom on the Sabbath. Technically, that's not true. But you know what you're not allowed to do? Tear toilet paper. Because that's destroying so guess what you have to do? Prefold. Prefold? Well, <laughs> now we actually, or bring a box of Kleenex in. And that's what they usually do is bring a box of tissues. So there you go. If you were carrying a fruit heavier than a dried fig, when a Sabbath trumpet is blown, you have to drop it, unless you can throw it up at the beginning of the sound and catch it with your mouth and eat all of it, because technically it wouldn't exist. True. Yes. <clears throat> but what if you actually, but you're running a risk here. But if you're actually not that good, you throw it up and you actually miss it, bounces off your face. Well, there you go. Then it still exists. You are not allowed to move a sheaf of grain. That is actually true because it has to be something. It can't be heavier than a dried fig, arguably two dried figs. But you are allowed to move a spoon. So if you were to put a spoon on a sheaf, you could move the sheaf because technically you were simply moving the spoon. Strangely enough, this is true. But you can't carry it, you can push it. There you go. You are not allowed to play Scrabble. Oddly enough, 
This is not true. But you are not allowed to write down your score because if you write down your score, you are creating and you're not allowed to destroy or create on the Sabbath. So, but then you go, well, the argument, and this, was the, this is actually still in debate. And the reason is because are you technically creating a word by laying it down? And, and the argument is, well, the word already exists. You're not creating a word. I'm like, well, what if you misspell it or it's wrong? Well, anyways, you get the idea. All right, last four. If your house were being robbed at night, you could only put out your lamp, in other words, to distinguish it, to hide yourself, if it were a Gentile robber. That is actually true. The problem is, how in the world do you know that? Excuse me, hey, you down there robbing me. Are you a Gentile? Because if so, I can hide. It is forbidden to watch telly on the Sabbath. False. But it is breaking the Sabbath to turn on your television or to change the channel. But if you have a remote that lights up when you press a button, so guess what happens? Everything is on a timer. And now, by the way, who do you think was behind voice activation technology? I kid you not. (laughs) So they're like, channel 14. Because there's the other. What's that? What about an iPad? Backlight. You ain't working. I mean, it's, the backlight's always on, though. So, if it was on before the Sabbath, then Then you can't turn it off. But you're right, because as long as you didn't turn on the light, okay. there's the idea. So I can watch Netflix all day on my iPad. <laughs> because <laughs> technically, I didn't. As long as... Yeah, there's the idea. New post. You could... You could life a bucket... Lift. Okay, thank you. A bucket <laughs> of rainwater... Unless the rain ran off the roof or a gutter first, then you couldn't. That's true. The idea is that rain's natural, and because it fell from the sky, it's okay. But the moment it touches something, it takes with it something from the world. There's the idea. You are not allowed to open your refrigerator on the Sabbath. That's not true. But, so what do you do before the Sabbath? You unscrew the light bulb. Then you can open up your refrigerator. You're not allowed to light a fire. That was actually straight out of Scripture. So you're not allowed to cook your food. But that doesn't mean somebody else could. So this is why when you're in Israel, during a Sabbath, your hotels are full. Because guess what happens if you stay in your hotel? If you stay in the hotel before the Sabbath happens, it doesn't matter how far away you are. You just can't go more than 2,000 steps once the Sabbath happens. And what happens is they look and they find the first three stars in the sky and the moment they find the first three stars in the sky they blow a trumpet and that says Sabbath has begun until the next day when they find three stars in the sky and they blow the trumpet and we're done. Does that make sense? So, guess who normally works in hotels? Gentiles. Gentiles. See, this is a place that works quite well for the Orthodox. If they can get Gentiles to cook their food, things are going to be okay. But they're also not allowed to exchange money. So bill me. That's the way that works. They pay beforehand, or they'll actually most likely pay on a Sunday. That's kind of the idea. So, okay, so how'd you do? Ten. Ten, right? Yeah! Oh, Dan took it! I'm guessing two days. Yeah, man. Okay. All right. Now, man, I tell you, hey, you guys are really close, man. You were neck and neck. I mean, there's there's so many others that are like, but you can understand, if you couldn't carry something greater than the weight of two dried figs, arguably one dried fig, arguably two dried figs, it doesn't really matter. It's like, how heavy is that? Could you put in your false teeth? You couldn't put them in. But if they were in, technically, you're... They're part of you. There's the argument. What about your glass eye? Same thing. What about the contacts? Well, good news about your contacts. They're lighter than two drugs. The idea. But, um, you know, so you get the idea. Lots, a lot of, here's the point. Is that if this is the case, it's more work to rest. You know what I mean? Because you're like, am I, am I... So I'm going to do this. There is a parallel. There are two parallel texts. Remember how the Gospels often record the same account in different ones? Uh, so Daniel, will you grab a Bible? Or you have one. The account in, in Matthew is in chapter 12. Verse 1. So go ahead and take a look at that if you could. 
But what I'm going to ask you to do, well, first of all, make sure so you can prove me right. Matthew chapter 12, look at the verse, you know, so you know that I'm telling you the truth. Do you see how that's the same account? Starting right at the first verse. Yeah. Okay, just want to make sure you guys are with me on that. We'll go back now to chapter 11. Daniel, will you read to me from verse 28 to the end? Remember, I, I remind you, when Matthew was writing this down, it wasn't like, new chapter, new idea. There were no chapter markings. That was actually written 580 years later to help us, so we could say, turn to Matthew 11. But read, would you please, Matthew 11, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. What leads up to this account? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What are the two things? The same thing he promises twice. What does he promise to give here? Rest. Rest. And I remind you, if Jesus were speaking this in Hebrew, that word would be Shabbat. That would be Sabbath. What does it take to get this rest? Take my yoke. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing, verse 28? Come to me. Come to me. This is the whole point that Sabbath is rest with me, not just stop working. There's our problem. What was our context in Mark? And we read it ahead of time. Was the idea? Remember that it's like you can't put a new thing in an old in an old container. It's not going to work. Your old religious system isn't going to work for this because your old religious system is all about works. You work to get right with God, and God says you actually rest to get right with Me. But you can't just rest. You have to rest with Me. That's the point. Does that make sense? So I'm going to roll out some things really quick and we'll go through our text. Because <clears throat> it rolls pretty quick. Sabbath, by the term Sabbath, is mentioned in 113 verses. There are over 300 verses that use the word rest in one way or another. But 113 verses use the word Sabbath, Shabbat. And I remind you, it was something God introduced in Genesis 2 when he stopped working. But he, the first time he says Sabbath is in Exodus 16. When he says, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And there's another word we can actually get really funky on is the word holy. It's important to recognize as Christians, holy isn't holy first, holy from, it's holy to. Holy means separate or, if you will, unique, different. But it's important to recognize there's different ways to be different. You could run around with aluminum foil on your head. And unless you're in Camden, that's pretty different. But to be holy from something or to be different from something means you have to compare it to some other group and it just doesn't fit in. It's usually the way we think of when we think of holy. And it's usually the way we think of when we think of Christianity. You just don't fit in. You're going to be the outsider. Which, in fairness, is probably true to some degree. But God uses the term and he says, you are holy unto me. And that, actually, that type of uniqueness is not in relation to a comparison with another group, but rather in a relationship with another person. There are three women in the world that are holy unto me. My wife and two children. Now, they are separate from the rest of the world, but that isn't the thing I'm comparing. It is my relationship with them that makes them that. You remove me from the equation, they are not that anymore. Because that relationship is what it's built on. And understand, when we talk about holy, we think of like piety. I, I just don't do these things anymore, and I'm going to be a nice boy. And I'm, you know, But it's like, bottom line is, those things should be the fruit. I'd rather use the word piety. In other words, good behavior. You could try to do that, but if you're not holy unto the Lord, you're doing it in your own strength. And you're going to get exhausted and go, why am I doing this? It's like acting like a married guy without a relationship. That kind of thing. It's a commandment, again, in Exodus 20. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The fourth, Deuteronomy 5, he reiterates it. Uh, God tells us in Exodus 31, 
to keep the Sabbath, it is holy to us now. He says, I understand, now the relationship has to be to us. Now, it's not just, hey, this day is different and we're going to compare it to the other days. So on Friday, people get wasted, people work Monday through Friday. Saturday's the day we're not going to have to work. But he's like, I want it to be unique to you, not just in comparison to other things. Does that kind of make sense? Now, again, understand God is setting us up for something here. That there is one day uniquely beyond all the others that should be different to you. And that's the day you rest with God. Capital offense is a result of that Exodus 35. That was the guy that went and gathered sticks. But God says, ultimately, you don't do this, man. You were cast out and died. But he also said in Leviticus 25 that the land was supposed to get that every seventh year. He called it a Shabbat Aretz, which literally means a land Sabbath. So every seventh year, because we were a farming community, you didn't farm. You let the, the, the ground run follow. Interesting, from the time that the Israel took the promised land, for the next 490 years, they would not ever give the land a rest. Now, let's be honest. If you live in a farming community, you live off the land. That takes a tremendous amount of faith to let God provide for you when you're like, hear me on this though, because this is where it starts to sit on us. If you don't do that, you will be convinced it all sits on your shoulders. You know what? Let me just be transparent. I send at least one update a month to people in America because that's where all of our sponsorship is. If I didn't, what I think that would stop happening. Does it sit on my shoulders? Does that make sense? Because can you imagine how much pressure that is? We went to America for two and a half weeks to go and actually reconnect with people, but also, of course, to raise money for citizenship. Does it sit on my shoulders? Or can I actually say, all right, Lord, what about this study? I mean, once a week, I'm actually out, you're probably aware of this, canvassing the pavement and actually talking to people and inviting them. But it isn't about inviting them here first. I want to invite them to Jesus first. But also let them know there's this place. Is it sitting on my shoulders? Because if it is, could you imagine the weight of that responsibility upon me? But would that be natural? If you were in my shoes, would you feel it? What if somebody, you know, weirds out and you go, no, look at there's always something you could have done or there's always something you shouldn't have done. But does it really sit on your shoulders? Because if it sits on your shoulders, how could you ever be a joyful Christian? I mean, if... if Let's face it. I can't make my wife love me. But I can invest in the relationship. Her loving me is her choice. But I can try to make it easier on her. But what if I actually thought that her care and attention to me relied on my performance? Because you know what? When you're younger, I feel like this is the older side. Um, sorry, to drag in that. Um, when you're younger, you put all your trophies in the front window. You look at someone and you're like, what impresses them? Now, you may not think it consciously, but we do that. And when you find out kind of what jazz is there groovy and you kind of dig into who you are, you kind of pull those things up and you leave them in the front. And the problem is if you, if you snag them with that then what happens when they actually go into the house of your life and start digging through the rest of it? Well, it's all downhill. But if you actually had to tweak yourself to actually nagger, snagger. So, Daniel sees this girl and she is everything. But she says to herself, she is not going to go out with anyone unless they're an accordion virtuoso. And Dan really wants her. And then Dan stays up every night learning the accordion. 
Well, let me hear you. No, 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 no. That'll be for another day. Gives him time to learn. And he isn't sleeping at night. He is working really, really hard at this thing. How does he know what virtuoso is in her mind? And he finally learns one song. He learns it really well. But he does like Flight of the Bumblebee. So something that would be like impressive. He does a Van Halen song on the accordion. She's like, wow, damn, that's amazing. You are an accordion virtuoso. I think we can go out. The problem is Dan's got one song. Now he's not going to have a lot. He's going to go out with her and try to impress her, but then he's going to go and have to learn a second song. The problem is he's going to have to spend the rest of his life being this thing. Because if you have to fight to get it, you have to fight to keep it. Here's the weird thing. We know when it comes to Jesus, we gave him our trash. We gave him our poo. I mean, we were rubbish of our life. And we said, take all of this, and God became the ultimate garbage man. And we knew that's how the relationship started. But the problem is, when someone does this as solid, we kind of still feel like we should pay him back. And somewhere we flip the relationship out to this place now where it's like completely not about grace anymore. And it becomes work. And we're like, well, God, I know, so what I should do is I should save a bunch of people. Well, you can't save anyone. But you can be out sharing. Well, I have to go and plant this amazing work, or I have to go and lead this amazing study, or I have to be the, the most holy guy, and I have to be perfect in front of everybody else, and I have to, you know... And it's like all of these performance things, but the problem is all of those performance things remove your faith and they get you to this place where you're too exhausted to enjoy the one thing God said, which is, why don't you just rest with me for a while? Just enjoy each other. You know what happens? You get exhausted. And you get to this place where you're like, this is Christianity? Man, I am pooped for good reason you know the funny thing is it's the same thing what happens when you rip the engine out of the car you can still get it to move but you're going to have to push it and let's face it in the end you're going to be wiped out even though you've just lost a couple thousand pounds but there's still weight on the car but when you put the Lord back in where he belongs in the situation at the center of the relationship you'll find you'll actually do infinitely more because it's a lot easier to press on a pedal than it is push a car and through all of this, it is important to note that. Now, there is this horrible queen named Queen Natalia. Um, she was the product of when Israel and, and Judah separated, and they kind of did this kind of political peace thing. And like King Ahab's daughter married the king of South, the king of Judah's son, uh, and they kind of had this whole thing. And what happened ultimately is, is that when that guy died, she was now grandma and she just killed, tries to kill everyone so she could become queen of both areas. Like, hey, everyone, it's grandma. Hey, hey, hey. Psycho. But in all of that, they're going to try to get her out and they have to reestablish a, a, a new king. One person was tucked away and they put her in the one place they knew grandma wouldn't look. The temple. That was the last place she was going to show up was church. And so this kid is like tucked away for six years and ultimately they have to go and they have to, in essence, kind of reordain somebody in her place. And when do they do it? They do it on a Sabbath. The kid's seven, Yehoash. Joash is seven years old when they do that. But And she's like, treason. She's like, but you're a psycho. You killed everyone. So anyways, all of that said, you get the idea. But hear me, in all of this, the whole idea is, if you trust me, you can rest. If you trust me, you can rest. If you don't trust me, it's going to be work. And in the same way, it's like, look at I trust my wife. I trust her implicitly. I have never, ever, sincerely, ever doubted her fidelity. Never. And I don't feel like I have to earn that. And she's got my better years. Now she just let's just pray that the habit's good enough for the rest of it. Uh, but because of that, I can respond in ways that are actually kind without trying to get an end to it, if that makes sense. It isn't like I'm trying to secure anything. It's out of that security I can do things freely and enjoy her. And that's a human being that's evil, and I'm a hu evil human being. But when it comes to the Lord, how strange is it that I feel like that's different? So Tunde pulls a solid on Nick, and Tunde goes, You know what? Nick, I know that you're going to be graduating from all of this soon. I want to give you a house. 
And I just have had a spare one in Chelsea. Probably don't know that about Tunde. Actually, I don't either. Tunde doesn't know that about Tunde. He's like, yeah, I got this house in Chelsea. I think you're going to really like it. It's just a nice place. And so, you know, you kind of take a look at this place. It's a palace, and it's sort of like, wow, this is great. But you know what? Thank you so much. That was totally kind. Let me pay you back. I've got 15 pounds. Wasn't that insult? Wasn't that insult to that? Because in the end of it all, what you're kind of saying is, is look at, can we be even if I do this? And he's like, I'm doing this because I'm being kind. This had nothing to do with the deservedness of the recipient, but had everything to do with the kindness of the giver. And that's what real grace is. But we're men, so we feel like we should pay back. But the problem is, we just can't. There's no way we could, we'll ever be able to pay God back. If we had the rest of eternity just to praise Him, we still wouldn't be able to pay Him back for what He did. Now, when Israel was brought to the promised land, they had a choice. Let God fight their battle and follow Him in to the promised land. That took faith. Or try to work it. And the problem for the four of us because we know how to work it. We're smart enough and conniving enough. We know how to work it. But you can't work this one out. There, instead, they're like, you know what? In our own working it out, they're bigger than us. They're more mighty than us. They've got better artillery than we do. There's no possible chance. The one thing they removed from the equation was God. So God said, I swore in my rest they would not, they would not, I'm sorry, swore in my wrath, they would not inherit my rest. He goes, I wanted to bring you into this land so you can rest with me. But now you're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. Or 38 more years. Interesting. That's the whole point in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this text, you guys. Because this is how the whole thing hits loggerheads. God, and this is being reiterated by writing to Hebrews, to Jewish people who have this history. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. And if you want to go and take a look at that, so you know that. I'm, For we who have believed do enter that rest. God said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way. This is chapter 2 of Genesis. That God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again in another place, they shall not enter my rest. Since there remains that some must enter that rest, and those to whom it was first preached did not because of disobedience, God designates a certain day when he says to David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If Joshua, the one who actually brings him into the promised land, could have given him that rest, God wouldn't have to say later through David that they, there needed to be a day of rest. In other words, if Joshua had done the whole thing and it was sealed, why did God say then, you know, because that was like 1200-1400 B.C., why did God say 400 years later to David, today I want to give you that rest? He who has entered God's rest, because it says there remains then a rest for the people of God, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So therefore let us, him writing then a thousand plus years later, let us be diligent enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So what's the rest? Jesus is. Observing the Sabbath holding it honorable. Remember, he says, that needs to be separate, unique to you. Not just in comparison to everything else. Now look at There's a difference between the ideal comparison and the personal relationship. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, they could say, that guy's my pastor, or that guy's my friend, or that gal's my wife, or that, that's my sister or my brother. Those are unique relationships to you. Now I could say, my wife's unique in a whole lot of other ways. I could say that Ruthie, no doubt, is unique in a whole lot of ways. As is my older, Sean Tank. Very unique and very... I mean, comparing her to other people. But when I actually look at it from the, percent, the perspective of my relationship, that's a very different thing. Does that make sense? Now look at Jesus. This is one of the weaknesses of us sharing with the lost. We're using holy 
in that other way. No, no doubt he is different from any other person who's ever walked this planet. Because he's fully God and fully man. That's 200% outside of our math. Died for our sins. Only one volunteering to do so. But wait a minute, that's the man's relationship. Rose again. But he did a lot of miracles. Most people don't do a lot of miracles. That makes him different. You know, he was Jewish. That makes him different from a lot of people. He lived 2,000 years ago. That makes him different from a lot of people. I mean, he turned water into wine. That makes him different from a lot of people. I don't know anyone else who's ever done that. He raised the dead. Cured blindness. Cast out demons. Pretty much just about everybody I know has never done anything like that. And that's the way I want to present it to other people. It keeps him safe in the eyes of other people because he's no threat. Because then it's sort of like, are you willing to agree in the Pythagorean theorem? Can we agree this is true? Yeah, but when in the world am I going to need that? I'm not building a bridge. No, again, I'm not trying to pick on the Pythagorean theorem, but you get the idea. It's a theorem we can agree in. If it ever needed, I, I can refer to it. But the moment I sit down and go, Tuesday, I met this girl, and I think she's perfect for you. A editor, Daniel's editor, Nick's editor, and I tell you, she is amazing. And this is why, and this is why, and this is why. Well, Tunde still has a choice in it, but he's a little less threatened by it than I would be if I actually spoke to her about Tunde. And the reason is, is that still traditionally, Tunde is going to be the leader of the household. I mean, she has to surrender that autonomy she may have at this moment living by herself somewhere in Chelsea, in one of those houses, of course. Right. So imagine it's like, look it, I'd like to talk to you about a person who raised the dead. Cool. Did a lot of miracles. Yeah, cool. Spoke the word of God. Awesome. He fed people with tiny amounts of food. Awesome. He walked on water. Cool. Seen the flannel grams. Hey, you know, he was born in a manger. Wow, yeah. We're going to decorate a tree about that. <laughs> and give gifts. Then he rose again. Oh, yeah, that was that other holiday we do. But let me tell you about my Savior. Because he's not just holy from <coughs> He's holy to me. And because he's holy to me, I can rest. All of that stuff doesn't make me rest. That stuff just makes me at best. I can agree with him. Well, that's cool. If I need a miracle, I know what it's to ask. Like he's the miracle store. I have very little. I need more. Don't have enough to pay the rent. And this isn't this the way people, most people treat God. He's like a store. If they have any form of concept of him, they're like, well, I think I'm pregnant or I have a disease or a warrant or something. All right, you're the hotline. Help me out. You're like kind of the world's ante for circumstance. But we're like, you know what? I want to talk to you about the person who actually allows me to rest. So what happens when we walk around and we try to tell everybody about this God who's actually holy to us? They have a right to see whether we're resting. So let me ask a legitimate question. What keeps you... I'm I'm going to talk in a natural sense. Remove all of that for a moment and we're just talking naturally. What keeps you from resting? Like genuinely really rest in life? Work. Why? Okay. So there's responsibilities. Sure. Troubles. Why? Because it's on your mind and you can't rest. It just keeps ticking over. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Word and troubles are pretty good. You know what those two things have in common? How responsible we feel for them. Let's face it. There are troubles all over the world right now. They could make us feel less safe. 
but they don't trouble us like the things we feel we have our hand in. Our relationship goes weird. And we were like, how do I fix this? What do I do? And that's what keeps us awake. That's what keeps us from resting. It's like, am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? Because if I blow this, it's on me. And guess what it is? Again, it's everything on your shoulders. Isn't it? So now how do I apply that to Jesus? Hey, I'm still busy with stuff. The problem is, the difference is, I'm actually part of the solution, but I'm not the problem solver. I love the fact it tells us that we are to cast our cares upon Him. Because God created gravity to help hold things in order. And God never said that we lift up our problems to Him because sometimes our problems are too heavy for us to bear. But we can always throw them down. It's like, take that heavy thing and throw it down. Listen to these words again in Jesus. In Matthew 11:28, Come to me. Can you do that? All who labor, and the idea of it is literally you work yourself to exhaustion, and are heavy laden. What does it mean to be heavy laden? Carrying a big burden. Excellent. You are weighed down. Do you know any person out there that isn't that? If you do, chances are, if you know anyone that's even not remotely this, or even mostly not this, chances are you've met a Christian. At least one that should be. Labor means, man, you are working so hard because if you don't, man, this whole thing's going to unravel. Now, that doesn't mean you aren't a part of the solution. You're just not the problem solver, but you get to be a part of it. It's like I can share the word with somebody, and if they don't say yes, it's not because I blew it. Because I'm just part of the evidence pool, and I'm like, all right, Lord, just use me. I'm, a, I'm available for whatever the purpose is. And then, you know, every talk to them, and then later you're like, oh, if I only said that, that would have nailed it. The guy's like, I didn't let you say that. Because that may have fixed it for you, but not for them. Okay, if you would just be willing to come to me, you could be as exhausted from all the work you've ever done, or just so weighed down from all the stuff you're trying to carry, I'll give you rest. I will I'll be your Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you. Now, understand, he just said you were heavy laden. To take my yoke means you need to trade what you're carrying for what I offer. Every discipler, every teacher uses this term. Because just like an ox, where you kind of put the yoke on top of them for them to work, basically when you went to school, that's what you did, you know. Your teacher went, okay, you're God. I'm putting my yoke upon you. He goes, let me tell you about the yoke I give you. First of all, you need to know who I am. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. What does it mean that he's gentle? What's the opposite of gentle? What's that? Yeah, actually. Harsh. Yeah, oppressive. That's good. He goes, you probably already know people that are like that. Pretty much life without him is that. It's harsh. It's oppressive. It's violent. What does it mean to be lowly in heart? Not raised up like a king. How about, yeah, like he really, he doesn't make it all about him. He makes it about you. He's like, I am so into you. I'm so into you. This isn't about me making kudos for me. So look, I'm going to be gentle with you. I'm not going to hurt you. And I'm doing this for you. And he goes, you know what? Listen, if you were willing to learn from me, this is what you're going to discover. The first thing you're going to discover is who I am, Jesus. And what you're going to discover is I'm gentle, and I'm lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Soul. Psyche. The word. We get the word psychology from it. That place that is troubled and why you can't rest. Let's face it. Most of the time, unless you're like hyped up on an energy drink or something like that, the reason why you don't rest is in the soul. And it goes, because my yoke is easy, which means it fits and my burden is light. When something doesn't fit, it shapes. It carves away at you. You ever have anything like that? You just tried to take on something and it just ate away at you and it was so heavy you just couldn't get anywhere. 
Jesus is like, that's not mine. If you follow, but you just need to come to me. I love that. Okay, you with me on that? This is what his disciples are hearing. Now listen to this text, and we'll wrap this around to close this. Because there's a primary point in, in the whole thing. Well, here's, here's how it starts. Look at it again. Up as they went through the grain fields. It says on the Sabbath that they went as they went. His disciples, notice it doesn't say he, but his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, the closest thing we have to this, because chances are we're not doing this, would be like if you grabbed a bunch of pistachios. You have to crack open the shell so you can eat the inside. Now, in this case, if it was like wheat, I don't know if you know, wheat has a husk kind of like that. You'd put them in your hand and you'd go like this. And as you ground them, you'd go and you'd blow away the light part. They call that the chaff. And what's left are the little nuts that you get to eat. Now, why is that breaking the Sabbath? Because you're working. Here's the problem. The Pharisees are nailing them on it, which tells me the Pharisees are at work because they're like the hall monitors of the Sabbath. And it's like, funny, you don't seem to have a problem working. Jesus would actually say that when you circumcise a guy on the eighth day, it has to be the eighth day. Well, what if it's a Sabbath? You still choose to circumcise him because the person is more important than the precept here. So now I look, you're breaking the law. Now, nowhere does it say you can't do this. But, except for this council, if you will, that's right up there with, you know, picking your nose or looking in a mirror. It does say for what it's worth that if you're walking through your neighbor's yard, because remember, everyone's a farmer, you are actually legally able to go and do this. You're just not able to pull in your tractor. Let's say, I mean, you can't, he said, don't bring a sickle. Well, that makes sense. So what would happen, like, let's say in Southern California, everyone kind of grows oranges or lemons. So you're walking through a guy's yard, and you pull an orange out, and you start to eat it. He goes, that's totally fine. Now you bring a bushel with you, and you got, you know, obviously you came for the intent of ripping a guy off. But, but look at, as neighbors, you do that with each other. That's kind of the idea. So actually, God a lot of provision for it. As a matter of fact, even went beyond that. He actually said that when it came to your field, you couldn't reap the corners. You left that for the poor. The poor, the poor never got a handout. The poor got a handout. There was, it was like, look, if you need it, it is there for your taking. Also, when you harvested, you were only allowed to go through once. After that, every, everything, after that point, all the poor were able to come and get whatever's left over. It's from that that the book of Ruth is whole set up because she is able to go and glean behind them because once they're reaping, she gets to follow and whatever's left behind, she gets to take. So Jesus starts to lift up this situation. He goes, okay, let me ask you a question. Remember the whole David situation? And by the way, remember to them, David's one of the most important people that ever lived. He goes, now, don't miss this situation. David had been an ordained king. He had been anointed king. But there was already somebody that thought they were in charge though they had been fired and that was Saul who had no interest in giving up the throne so David has to flee for his life though he is God's choice he's God's chosen anointed king the ones who are in control have no interest in stepping off so as a result of that they try to kill him does that sound familiar? Jesus is the anointed choice of the father but the regime of the time has no interest in stepping off the throne and they want to kill him. So David shows up and he's running for his life and he shows up at the tabernacle. Now, there's a high priest and his son. The son's the guy that's mentioned here by Jesus, Abiathar. And he shows up and he says, hey, I'm running an errand and I, I'm running for my life. But he actually doesn't tell him. But he's like, I'm on a secret errand and I don't have any food. Do you have any food? Again, David fled just because he didn't want to die. Reasonable. And the priest says, I don't really have any food lying around, but the tabernacle had this table. And this table was on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, I'm sorry, if you looked at the uh, Holy Holies, on the right-hand side, and there had 12 loaves of bread. And those 12 loaves were called showbread. And they were, in essence, to remind you that God was the provider. And there were 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel. Once a week, on the Sabbath, God would have them remove and put fresh bread out. Traditionally, and this sounds like classic tradition, they remained hot until then. Now, whether that's true or not, I really don't know. I wasn't there. 
Ben, it's kind of a cool story. Nonetheless, <coughs> every Sabbath you took those loaves down and you put fresh loaves up. David shows up and he goes, hey, I need some food. I'm running an errand. I need some food. And then he's going to say, hey, you got a weapon? I'm like, what kind of guy sends you on a secret mission and you don't have any food or a weapon? Nonetheless. And they're like, well, we just took down the 12 loaves. What does that tell you about when David came there? David came there on a Sabbath. And that priest is like, well, if your men have kept themselves from women, they haven't been running around sleeping around, so they're kind of holy, I think we can give this bread to you because, I mean, let's see, do I throw this bread away and say it's dedicated to God or do I give it to you guys because it takes care of you? And he goes, you know, you're right, you should have it. That only makes sense. So he gave it to David. And they go, you know what? Nobody seemed to complain about that. Because you guys don't seem to have... Do you know what to this day rabbis argue over whether David ever sinned? I'm like, hmm, what about that Bathsheba thing? <laughs> that was kind of a little pretty big deal. That's a kind of a doozy. And then killing her husband and all that. Anyways, I mean, you could start a riot. There have been people who started riots over that argument. Anyways, so Jesus goes, no, let me ask you. If that wasn't... If, I mean, if you guys are cool with that, what was the whole situation here? The situation was, there was a priest who had these loaves, they were dedicated to God, but if they're dedicated to God, shouldn't they benefit someone? Isn't that the point of it? Jesus actually nails them on another thing. They actually have this term called Corbin. And the idea is that literally means dedicated to God. And, these are, and Jesus goes, you know, you are actually the command breakers. Because you actually can use this term Corbin about anything you have. You know, it does say to honor your father and mother. So let's say your mom and dad are living in a place with no furniture. And you're living in this palace. And you've got couches galore and beds in every bedroom. But you're like, these are dedicated to God. And your parents don't have a bed to sleep on. You really think that God's actually approving that? Like, oh, hey, this is dedicated to God. But your parents are sleeping on the floor? It's like you just broke the commandment of honoring your father and mother because you played your historical traditional game on this. You know how easy that is to do? You're like, oh, this thing's kind of dedicated to God. If it's dedicated to God, who is it benefiting? And then he lays out this particular standard. Does that make sense? So he lays out this standard, and this is the whole point of it. He says, um, I'm kidding, right? And this is how it ends. Unique to the Gospel of Mark, by the way. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. One is going to serve the other. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jew. The term for man is anthropos, like anthropology. It means all mankind. That includes us. Are any of you completely Jewish? Didn't think so. All right. So this means us, too. Rest was made for man, not man for rest. If you have to serve rest, that doesn't make any sense. I work for rest. How does that play out? He goes, God's like, I invented this for you. Not, I invented it so you could serve it. I invented church for you. And everything God invented was for you. That's the crazy part about it. He's like, look at if you understood the whole thing was, will you rest with me? Then you'll get it. Not, will you work for me? But I'm like, well, wait a minute, but you ever have the point where you're just like, I just want to do something. God's like, cool. Guess what? If you belong to me, if everything that is dedicated to me is going to benefit someone else, guess what happens when you dedicate yourself to me? I'm going to use you to bless other people. That only makes sense. So here they are trying to nail him. By the next time, by the way, in the next chapter, because this is the end of chapter 2, chapter 3 is going to deal with the guy with a withered hand on a Sabbath. And they're, I mean, they're going to get to the point when he's actually taking care of the woman that had been, you know, her, keeled over for 18 years. They're actually going to yell at her and go, you know, there are six other days for you to get healed. You know, hey, stop bothering us on this day. Aren't you glad that God doesn't take a day off? 
see, the thing is, is that the reason we can rest is because he doesn't. He doesn't stop doing what he does. And yet, still, because he's God, he can actually rest with us and work at the same time. We can't. We weren't built that way. I would say, even though God gave us two lips, you can only kiss one person at a time. Maybe try, but I don't recommend it. Don't prove me wrong on that. You sure? Okay. I'm not, not according to me. Try Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> With that girl that I'm yeah, supposed to interact with. From Chelsea. Yeah. From Chelsea. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's her name. Um, hey, look at Here's the point of all of this. And we're going to close this up. This actually could be revolutionary for us. Especially because there's a lot of people out there that really kind of see this whole thing as a whole new work system. The work system looks like this. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you give money to the church or whatever. And maybe once you're there long enough, you actually have to do things like set up chairs and, you know, give full attention to people or clean up and wipe up vomit and whatever else may happen. And then, if you're not very good, you'll probably have to work with children. But if you're actually pretty good at other things, maybe you actually don't. And you get to, like, get a cool title. You know, and then sooner or later, maybe if that's the case, either you keep giving and you work somewhere else or you work for the church. But it's just the whole thing's like work. You know, you live your life, then you meet a girl and then you have to serve her for the rest of your life. And, you know, you're going to have to ultimately buy a house for her, or at least rent one. And you're going to have to work to make sure you can keep her happy. And then you're going to probably have kids, and then you're going to have to work for them the whole time. But that was what the way it was pitched to us. Who would ever want to get married or have kids? You're missing the primary point, and that is a relationship. And what if tonight everything just started with this as we pray? What if it started with just holding on to because the reason we're holy to God is not because it compares us with other people. It's because of the relationship we have with Him. So what if tonight we prayed that? Jesus, could you be holy unto me? Not just holy because you're different from everyone else. Because you are. But because you are, it makes it even cooler that you're holy unto me. Be unique to me in my relationship with God. Wouldn't it be a great place to start? And then when people start asking about Jesus, we're like, okay, wait a minute. Oh, that's right, that study. Yeah. It's Christmas time, people might ask. But you speak differently. Hey, there's a lot of pretty girls out there. You could talk about them of being pretty, and you could probably even develop that in certain circles. But when you have a relationship with someone like that, you speak with a different kind of attitude. Mark's beautiful, and I love her for it. But the way that I can describe her isn't just physical features. It's my relationship with her. That's what makes her so cool. That's what makes her unique. Alright. Well, let's pray then. Lord, I just want to thank you so much that we get this time. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here. And thank you, Lord, that this isn't about whether we press a button or light a fire or open a refrigerator or uh, even pick our nose. Because in the end of it all, the only thing that's really going to matter is why we're resting or how we're resting. Not just working at not working. But you tell us that he who has entered your rest has ceased from his works. And we realize we are no longer working to make you happy, to make you want us. Because that's just crazy. To be honest, that is self-righteousness. And that's what everyone else in the world is doing. They're trying to do stuff to try to win whatever you or whatever they think you look or act like. Trying to win that over. But we are not self-righteous because this isn't about our works. It'll never be about our works. And because of that, we can rest because it's about grace. It's about your kindness. And that's what makes you different. Not just from everyone else, but different to us is because we have a relationship with you because you want us. You volunteered to pay for us because you want us. You died on the cross because you want us. You rose from the grave and didn't call us out of our own because you want us. Please, in our hearts now, be holy to us. And not just holy from everything else. 
And when we speak about you, may we speak about you in that relationship of being holy to us. And as we seek to address how amazing you are, may it not just be because of your facts and your stats, but because who you are to us, not in some kind of solvent way, but in the fact of the relationship we have with you because of what you did at the cross. And Lord, I just pray that we would not neglect that rest. We wouldn't neglect, Lord, resting in you and that we would stop trying to pay you back but rather celebrate who we are in you. Because it is really impossible to wrap our heads around it by looking at this world. But when we recognize you are not like this world because you are different, we can embrace you in the way that you are different and that is that you are kind and loving without us ever deserving it. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.